0: Thank you, Stephanie. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, according to uh, researchers who study such things, Bible reading in the United States of America has been on the decline for probably the last 50 years. But here's the thing. Americans still respect the Bible. 80% of Americans believe that the Bible is sacred. And we still own Bibles. 85% of households in America have at least two Bibles in their home. Americans even wish that they read the Bible more statistically. That same 85% who have multiple Bibles in their home express a desire to read it more than they currently do. So it begs the question, what's holding us back here? (laughs) What is it that's holding us back? The Barna Research Group notes the top four reasons that people do not read their Bibles. Uh, The first is this. See if you relate with any of these. They don't make time for it, okay, or they don't have time for it. I would say don't make time for it. Uh, That the language is difficult, that it's boring, and that they don't understand the background or the history. Those are the top four reasons that people do not read their Bibles. All four of these are actually fixable by the way if you look at them. The first one is really a a relatively simple equation of just making more time to read the Bible, reprioritizing, right? And the other three all boil down to to parts of scripture that are just hard to read or understand. And we can actually talk about that. If you've ever tried to re- how many of you have ever tried to read through the Bible from Genesis 1 and just go all the way through? Anybody tried to do that? How well did it go for you? It's tough, right? <laughs> Did it twice. Wow, you're a better person than me. No, it's, it's a tough thing to do. How, how was the book of numbers for you when you got to the book of numbers? Yeah, a little tedious. Yeah, so a lot of people get to the book of numbers and they start reading about, you know, the construction plans and the uh, the reports of this or that, and, they, and they, get, they get tired. And maybe if you made it through Numbers, you got to the book of Judges, and there's all these bloody conquests and all this violent stuff, and you have a tough time going like, I can't really reconcile this with a God of love and like who I know the person of Jesus Christ to be. And if you got through the book of Judges, maybe you got to like the book of Proverbs, which for me is just like, it's so thick and dense, I have a tough time understanding what the, the point of logic is here sometimes. Well, let's talk about Nehemiah chapter 3. That we're in today, which I would not blame you for saying is absolutely one of those passages. It's not like the previous two passages that we talked about in this series on Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1, we talked about that beautiful prayer of Nehemiah. We're gonna keep going back to that because I think that's pretty easy for us to enter into. It's not tedious, it's just beautiful. It's not like Nehemiah 2 that Simon preached on ably last week as he talked about godly character as as Nehemiah exemplifies godly character for us. I think there's tons of inroads in Nehemiah chapter 2, but chapter 3 is different for us. It's tedious, it's got names that are really hard to pronounce. If we're being generous, we're tempted to skim to get to an actual story like the one that's coming up in Nehemiah chapter 4 which we'll talk about next week. If we're feeling a little less generous, we might be tempted to just close our Bibles altogether and go, see, this is why I don't read the Bible. It's, it's unreadable. It's frustrating. It's boring. But I, I actually want to model something different for you this morning. We are studying the book of Nehemiah. We're going through the whole thing. And his rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, that's really the story of Nehemiah. And we're trying to catch a vision for what it means for us to rebuild our understanding of the role of church in our lives, the role of God in our lives. And after a year and a half of upheaval, I actually think this is an ideal passage for us to be talking about rebuilding. You see, even the passages that we come across that are the hardest to understand, that are the most tedious, I want to say that they are full of the Holy Spirit. They're full of Jesus' wisdom for us as the Spirit speaks to us. And this passage actually happens to have some incredible lessons for us today that I think are going to help us in our rebuilding effort as we come back to church, as we come back to spiritual practices. And ultimately, it's a passage that points us to Jesus, which is pretty great. So I'm going to do something a little crazy today. I'm going to read this chapter in its entirety, partly because it's really hard to, to get it down. There's just a couple of verses to read to you today. Um, and I'm actually going to pronounce all these names in the Hebrew language, not to show off to you, but because, Hebrew, uh, because Nehemiah, as he's writing these names, he deemed these names as worthy to be named. So we're going to name them as well. And also because Hebrew names have deep meaning in them, and most of all because Hebrew is just really beautiful. So last week we learned about how Nehemiah prepared and strategized for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem this is the account of the work that was actually done. So would you stand for the reading of God's word today? Nehemiah chapter 3. I know we're going to get about three minutes into this and you're going to have a tendency to go, okay, I'm checked out now. You can have your Bible in front of you. There's Red Pew Bibles if you want to follow along. I don't have it on the screen because it would be about, you know, 10 10 slides worth of of things that you couldn't read anyway. So, I'm going to read this, and I really want you to listen. I want you to listen for trends. I want you to listen for what God has to say in this passage. Nehemiah chapter 3. Then the high priest, Eliashib, set to work with his fellow priests and rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And the men of Jericho built next to him. And next to them, Zakur, son of Imri, built the sons of Hasana'ah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, its bars. Next to them, Merimot, son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshe- uh, Meshezebel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Ba'ana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Joida, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besodeah, repaired the old gate. And they laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, repairs were made by Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Merionite, the men of Gibeon and Mitzpah, who were under the jurisdiction of the governor beyond the province, uh, beyond, uh, of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, son of Harchiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Raphaiah, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jedaiah, son of Haru, uh, Harumath I want to get that right. Harumath made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, son of Hashbaniah, made repairs. Malkisha, son of Harim, and Hashuv, son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section of the tower of the ovens. And next to him, Shalom, son of Hashaheth ruler of uh, Halasheth, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Ha-un, Hanun, son of the inhabitants of Zanoiah, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set up its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a 1,000 cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth, Hacharem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mitzpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set up its doors, its bolts, its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethsur, repaired from a point opposite the graves of David, as far as the artificial pool in the house of the warriors. After them, the Levites made repairs, Rahum, son of Bani, Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kila, made repairs for his district. And after him, their kin made repairs. Benui, son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kaliah. Next to him, Etzer, son of Yeshua, ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, son of Zabai, repaired another section of the angle to the door of the house of the high priest Eliashib. After Merimote, son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, made repairs. And after them, Benjamin. Can I get a round of applause for a normal name? Benjamin. Okay. Almost done. After them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, son of Mas, Maaseah, son of Ananiah made repairs beside his own house. After him, Benui, son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the angle and to the corner. Palal, son of Uzai, repaired opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. And after him, Pedaiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate on, east, on the east and the projecting tower. And after him the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each one opposite his own house, and after them, Zadok, son of Imer, made repairs opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, son of Shemaliah, and Hanun, sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. And after him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters, after him, Malkijah um, made, uh, one of the goldsmiths made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper room of the corner and between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can have a seat. Now, oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that affirmation. Okay. Okay. Everybody awake? We're good? What are we supposed to be gleaning from this passage? The structure of this passage actually unfolds, uh, this is a a map of the city of Jerusalem at the time, the city of David, and it it goes counterclockwise uh, through the gates and the workers who were working on the gates that they were closest to. It starts with the sheep gate that's up at the top right. The sheep gate was the gate where people brought in the, the sheep for the sacrifices in the temple, the unblemished sheep that had to be a very clean gate, ritualistically clean for those, for those sheep to come in. That's where the shepherds would come in. The next one up there is the fish gate. That's where traders would bring in fish from the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea to the markets there. Then there's the old gate and the valley gate. Those open to the Hinnom Valley in the west. And then you have the refuse or the dung gate. I will let you guess what that gate is for and why it is in the exact opposite spot of the most clean gate, the sheep gate, right? The dung gates, uh, the furthest one south there. And then there's the fountain gate and the water gate next to the pool of Siloam and the Gihon Spring, respectively. Places you can visit today. The inspection gate is kind of the last one, or the muster gate. We're not exactly sure um, what this gate was for, but many believe this is where the priests would come in and be inspected, that they were clean and ready to do their services in the temple. So we get a run-through of these gates and the work that's done on them. And then we get this whole list of names, some of which I probably pronounced okay and others that I might have missed, but it's sort of like the starting lineup of a sporting event, right? Here, here, Here are the players, here's the positions that they're playing at. I read a a ton on this chapter in the last couple weeks to prepare for this sermon, and it seems that a lot of preachers, what they want to do is they want to look at these gates and try and sort of mine some different meaning of what these gates are, or they want to take these Hebrew names, these beautiful Hebrew names, which all have meaning, by the way. Some of them are Babylonian names, some of them are Hebrew names, and they want to kind of like suss out the meaning of those names. And I couldn't believe how many things I read that seemed to miss what was so clearly right in front of our noses as I read it. This passage so clearly to me is about working with one another to accomplish the task of rebuilding. Yes. There's a lot to be learned from this passage about delegation and organization and collaboration and administration. Nehemiah is an example of all of that. And and there are indeed many books on Nehemiah and leadership lessons that could be applied to your workplaces or organizations or your family or even our church life here. But I don't think that's what makes this special, this passage special for us today. In this sermon series, we've been asking the question, how might God be leading us through this crazy worldwide change that we're going through to rebuild his church stronger than ever? And this passage is so perfect for that because it's a forerunning vision of what? The church. The church. Everyone who becomes a Christian does so by faith in Jesus Christ. A recognition that they need a Savior. That they experience the need that comes from sin and brokenness in their life and they need a Savior. Yet many Christians fail to recognize that the call to Christ and following Christ is also a call to become an essential member of the community of faith, the body of Christ, the church. We don't live our faith unto ourselves. We do it with others for the sake of God's glory. If if we want to rebuild a church that is more fit for mission than ever, we have to do it together. Theologian Christopher Wright says, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. The Apostle Paul expounds on this idea when he uses the metaphor of a body to speak of the church. We are not individuals, units that are like orbiting around ourselves. We are a body with many members, different gifts, different talents, different places, different abilities, different passions, and we're all to be working together. Paul says that just as like a toe or an eyeball or an organ can't say, I don't really want to be part of this body, I'm going to go do my own thing. So the body works together to do what Jesus did here on earth. So in the same way, I think Nehemiah 3 describes how the people of God carry out the mission of God. Notice, first of all, that they do not commission Nehemiah to do the work. Did you notice that? And the church is the same thing, and this is where it's good for me to clear up a common misconception. You've called me and the other pastors and staff of this church to work at Hinsdale Covenant and work for Hinsdale Covenant and for its mission, but you didn't actually hire us to do the work, believe it or not. Our jobs are to equip you all to carry out the mission that God has for all of us as a church. We don't do the mission of the church. We help you do it. We help you do it. In fact, the ultimate goal of my work, believe it or not, would be to have you come back as a church and go, hey, Lars, thanks for everything. We don't really need you anymore. We're good. We're equipped for mission. We're clicking on all cylinders. We're living missionally in in the places where we are, and and, uh, thank you for your help, but we don't need you. That would actually be awesome. That'd be amazing. But much like Nehemiah, it helps to have people who are holding that vision, who are keeping us accountable to that vision, who are keeping people on mission. And to me, What makes this passage so great for us is that it's a model of the church in so many ways. So it would be tragic for us, wouldn't it, to flip past Nehemiah 3 and be like, this is boring. Let's get to chapter 4. That's more of a narrative. It's much more interesting because chapter 3 is actually one of the most instructive parts of the book. It's the actual work that's done. Especially as we're seeking to be a church of rebuilders in this world that is changing so rapidly and where so many of the old structures have been broken down and need to be rebuilt and repaired. So, I want to point out three truths, okay? And this is where you get to test your listening skills to that very long passage that I read to see if you picked up on any of these things. First thing is this. Each rebuilder is important to the mission. Each rebuilder is important to the mission. We get a pretty obvious clue that this is the case in what? The fact that Nehemiah mentions everyone by name, (laughs) Nehemiah could have very easily said there were some people over here who were working here and then there was a group of people over here and they did this, much shorter passage, much easier to read on a Sunday morning. But he takes the time to name every single one of them because each and every one of those rebuilders mattered. And short of some of the elite men from Tekoa who saw some of this work as beneath them, we get an indication from the passage that every single person that's named did their part. They did the work. It's also important to note that each of these people in the chapters, in this chapter, were volunteers. They weren't paid. They weren't contracted. They weren't conscripted for this work. They did this work because Nehemiah had provided for them a compelling vision and mission, and because they loved Jerusalem. They wanted to see Jerusalem restored. They wanted to see the walls rebuilt. They wanted to see honor come back to that city They wanted to return it as the rightful place of the city of God, the place where God is honored and and people experience his presence and worship is restored and scripture is read and God is glorified. That's what they wanted. So they volunteered to do their part because they believed in the mission and they wanted to be a part of it. And they're like, if I'm not a part of this rebuilding, I'm missing out on what God has. So let me say to you as a church, if you don't already know this, let me... Say it and and let it be abundantly clear. You are important. Every single one of you are important. If we're going to rebuild healthier and more vibrant than we ever were before, we're going to need each and every one of you. We want a reality where Jesus is honored and worship is restored and scripture is read and God is glorified. And we need all of you to take hold of that mission together. You are not here merely to support the mission of Hinsdale Covenant Church. Hinsdale Covenant Church is actually here to equip you for mission. So where is that mission? What is it? Well, it's where God has placed you. That's the second thing. Each rebuilder is placed strategically by God for mission. The clue in this text that this is true is a couple of phrases that are repeated over and over again. I'm sure you heard them if you were listening. Throughout this chapter, we hear first the phrase next to him or next to them. Did you hear that? A bunch of times this person working next to this person. During the three days that Nehemiah was in Jerusalem sort of plotting this, he did some incredible coordination and planning and administration because he knew where each person would work. And maybe more incredibly, if you've ever tried to administrate anything, each rebuilder knew where they were supposed to go and what they were supposed to do. That's a miracle. We're talking about over two and a half miles of wall. And each person had a place on that wall. There's a lot of focus on gates here. You might be wondering why. Well, it's because the gates were the most susceptible places to invasions, to invading armies. And that's why so many people were assigned to that important work. Uh, Some of them were rebuilding the section of the wall from scratch that was in front of them. Other people were only just making repairs to something that that needed a little work. But each knew their job, what it entailed, and they were prepared to do it. There's a second recurring phrase as well that you may have picked up where we see over over against his house or beside his house numerous times. Think about this. How brilliant is Nehemiah? Rather than having each rebuilder of the wall commute across the city to a place to work, what does he do? He arranged for almost everyone who's working on the wall to be able to volunteer close to their house. That's efficient, right? But it's also wise. Why is it wise? Because it saves time. It means that the rebuilders can can have lunch, be fed at their own homes. It also means that if they're attacked by enemies, they're much closer to protecting their families, their loved ones. And I think probably the most wise is if you're working on a section of wall that you ha- that is right next to your house, what does that mean? You have to look at it every day. How motivated are you going to be to do a good job if you have to look at it every day? Probably pretty motivated, right? So, What Nehemiah does here is he relieves their anxieties. He makes it easy for them to do good, focused work, and he gives them incentive to put in their very best effort. Friends, I think this is an incredible word for us. It's such a timely word for us. God, I'm convinced that God has strategically placed you where you are on your street, in your family, in your extended family, in your workplace. In your school, so awesome to have a number of high schoolers and junior highers here. In your schools, you have a place to be a part of God's rebuilding mission. And I think primarily that place is really close to home. That's what I think. You have a section of wall to work on right where God has placed you. So let me ask this question Do you know your neighbors? What new neighbors have moved in that you haven't introduced yourself to yet? Do you know your coworkers? When's the last time you entered into a spiritual conversation as a family or with a friend over dinner or on the train or with a waitress or with a classmate at school? I wanted to show you a map of our church. Our church is kind of in the center of that map there. And, and this is, each pin here is like a member in our church. It's not all of them. You can't see them all because they're kind of covering. Some of them are covering others. But I just look at this and I get excited because if we are focused on being the hands and feet Of Jesus Christ on our homes in our homes and on our blocks in our workplaces where we are in our schools our reach is going to fundamentally transform the entire BNSF train line and the western suburbs of Chicago This would be the kind of movement of the Holy Spirit that I pray for every day that we so desperately need so that people turn from the desolation of a life in sin and without God with its empty promises and its failing hope to turn to a God who loves them, who sees them as important, who lavishes grace on them and who has a wonderful purpose for them and cares deeply for them and knows their name and pronounces it right every time because it's a beautiful name. And here's the thing, look at this map, only you can do that. I can't do that, you want to know why? Because I'm not placed where you are. I'm not strategically placed where you are. Here's the thing, only you can do that. We cannot hope to do the work that only you can do where you're placed. Not a chance. But what we can do as a staff, like the Apostle Paul, we can pour out our lives as a libation to equip you to realize that God has strategically placed you right where you are and that he has marvelous work to do through you. Now, what about God's mission? That's not on our block. Some of you smart people are going, well, what about the city of Chicago? There's issues there. What about issues in our nation? What about Chopra? You guys talk about India all the time, this village in India. How does that work into this? Well, believe it or not, the sneaky text has something to say about that as well. You may have noticed that there were men from Tekoa and Gibeon and Jericho and Mitzpah. Guess what? None of those places are in Jerusalem. none of those places are in Jerusalem. so why are these people even there? Because God moved their hearts and here 's the cool thing about this passage that while other people are working on their section that 's close to their house it 's these people who fill in the gaps in the places in the wall where there 's no one living there that 's where they are they 're filling in the gaps. I know that if I'm not faithful to the mission that God has called us to on 4th Street in my the places that I go to in downtown Houston when I'm having coffee down if I'm not faithful to that if I'm not obedient to that what am I doing I'm leaving gaps in the wall I'm leaving vulnerabilities and sometimes God calls other people to come in and help us with that but there can be no more prescient and timely word than this God has strategically placed you where you are. So work diligently out of love for God and faith in his calling upon you. Third and last thing from this text. Each rebuilder needs to value, trust, and celebrate each other as rebuilders. It's hard to miss that there are different groups of people who are working on the wall of Jerusalem. Priests and Levites, rulers and common people, gatekeepers and guards, farmers, perfumers, goldsmiths, pharmacists, merchants temple servants, men and women. It even notes that one of the workers, his name is Raphaiah, was ruler of half of the districts of Jerusalem, and yet he didn't get to say, I don't want to be part of this. The priests could have more focused on more holy work, right? The smiths could have said, I'm a smith, I do detailed work. You're asking me to do masonry? This is brute work. But they don't do that. I'm sure they maybe thought of excuses, but it didn't matter. These people came together from all sorts of different walks of life, different socioeconomic circumstances, political leanings, to do the work together. Nobody got to opt out because of their status. There's no record of significant infighting or complaining going on in Nehemiah chapter 3. Each of them are equally celebrated by name for their part. Is this not a view of the church? (laughs) I mean, you don't get to opt out of this because of your status or because you've already paid your dues, or because you've got more important things to be done. We are all invited to do our part right where we are. There are no exemptions for being equipped for mission. And we need to get along with one another. We need to refuse to be divided. We need to focus on the mission that unites us and celebrate one another for God's work in our lives. So my friends, can you see this crazy chapter in Nehemiah 3 actually challenges us as a church. It's a good word for us. A passage that can seem antiquated or pedantic or boring is actually dynamic and convicting, and it provides a beautiful picture for us of the church. As we deeply long, I know that you all feel this way, we deeply long to see the church return stronger than ever. As we plead for fresh movements of the Holy Spirit, Nehemiah tells us that it's not going to be happening because we hire better staff. Or because we have brighter lights, or because of identity politics, or social media strategies, or the perfect sermon or seminar. It's going to happen when the people of God know that they are vitally important to the church, and they embrace godly character, and they're willing to roll up their sleeves and get to work right where God has strategically placed them, and they refuse to be divided in the way that the world divides being unified instead in their identity as God's people over and against everything else and their joyous commitment to God's mission for them. God designed us to work with one another in this rebuilding effort, so let's get to rebuilding together. Would you pray with me? Lord, in this moment of quiet, would you impress upon us where you have placed us? Would you bring to our minds our streets, our classrooms, and our workplaces, and the trains that we commute on, the places where we get our coffee and get our food, Lord, would you impress upon us now in this moment where you have placed us? And Lord, as we think about where you have placed us, would you impress upon us the work that you want us to do? Who do you want us to to reach out to? What boundary do you want us to cross? What door do we need to go knock on to introduce ourselves? Who do we know that's hurting? Who do we know that's lost? Who do we know that needs healing and reconciliation and hope? Who do we know that needs a friend? Would you impress upon us the work that you would have us do where we are? And Lord, as we think about where you've placed us and the work you've given us to do, would you remind us of the people sitting next to us, the people that you've placed next to us to do this rebuilding work together? We are your body. And Lord, as we join together in this effort, would you remind us that we are not alone because there is another one with us who fills in all the gaps, and his name is Jesus. The reconciler, the rebuilder, the one who carries forth our vision, the one who is our mission. as we seek to rebuild in this way as your church. Lord, it's nothing if we don't recognize your presence. Unless the Lord builds this house, the workers toil in vain. So Lord, we center ourselves on you, the one who is with us, the one who equips us, and the one who calls us forward. We pray in your name.